God as Merciful Compassion. In this podcast, we discuss how our three writers, Shapira, Julian, and Attar, see suffering as a process that discloses mercy as the essence of God. As discussed earlier, suffering prompts us to cry out, but also to long for restoration of dignity. However, we're not to stop there. Longing for God is but prelude to a deeper awareness of God as merciful compassion. Recall that mercy here is not forgiveness for wrongdoing. Despite the world's logic, there's no sin to forgive for suffering. Here, mercy is healing for our wounds. Suffering doesn't just drive us to cleave to God when we feel God is absent. If we're attentive to its sequence, suffering discloses God amidst our wounds, sharing in our suffering and even suffering in our place. One might speak here of human divine co-emotionality. Shapira has a strong sense of God's suffering for the Jews. Their suffering is occasion not only for them to cling to God, but for God to suffer on their behalf. This insight is possible only by seeing our humanity as organically related to divine activity, which is what constitutes the real self within. Without such awareness, you'll fragment mentally in good times no less than in bad. Without emotional cognition of God's nourishing and healing presence within, we despair, if we're honest, at the world's brutal realities. In contrast, this emotional cognition allows us to soar to new existential heights, disclosing what truly stands at the foundation of the human self. Shapira understands this in terms of Torah as the divine presence dwelling not only amidst the community, but also in the depths of the Jewish soul. He isn't projecting the human psyche onto God, but is rather calling us to be attentive to the fact that God is present to every aspect of our being. As a result, it's not that we don't suffer, but that we're able to bring our suffering to God to transform its effects on our souls. As such, it's no longer a source of shame, as if evidence of punishment or abandonment. Even if we feel we're in hell, God is with us. One might ask, if suffering manifests God's mercy, shouldn't we seek to increase it? None of our writers take this view. Suffering is unavoidable in our imperfect world, but we're not to increase it. It's a theological error to seek out suffering. Compassion is God's action, not ours, even if taking place in our emotionality. It is because God's compassion is a gift that it heals us. Thinking we can conjure it up by inflicting suffering on ourselves wouldn't work to remake us. Only God can do that. We can't earn divine compassion. It's a gift and is transformative only as a gift. The suffering is ours, but its transformation is God's. In that sense, Shapira sees suffering as a sign of God's solidarity with us. Suffering is not God's will, but does deepen knowledge of God's love. It is not a blessing, but does have transformative agency. It is real, but not the end. God is with us and for us, not in worldly victories, but worldly defeats when suffering is our only weapon. 
With Shapira, we see that the fullness of human knowing necessarily includes the workings of our emotions, since they play a vital role in guiding us to awareness of our ultimate realities. We know the truths of humanity by sensing them in our affections as much as we do by defining them in scholarly treatises. Our affections offer God occasion to move closer to us. Shapira is not calling to escapism. He knows suffering is real. His spirituality is deeply rooted in the body along with the emotions. It's about bodies in pain and affections in search of solace. Suffering is transformed by God, but it's not made illusory in the process. Julian, for her part, was all too aware of the impoverished theological reflection on suffering in her day. She insists that the cross is healing, rejecting the idea that it placates God's wrath at a sinful humanity. The cross is not a divine shuffle, condemnation of humanity only to absolve it. Julian knew from her own experience that the cross is God's way of extending compassion to us in our suffering, not of making us feel guilty for sin. She speaks of the cross as a kindly glance from God that gives us new life and new joy. The cross, Julian says, is a supreme comfort and a blessed contemplation for a longing soul and a source of surpassing joy. Julian's theologically sound view of the cross as a kindly gesture on God's part isn't a trick to help us endure life's misery. More profoundly, her vision of the cross is meant to instill hope of new life and new joy. Julian does see the body of Christ on the cross as locus of divine suffering on behalf of humanity's sin, but it is not sin in the sense of bad deeds to be forgiven. The only sin she teaches is our shame at our own suffering, as if we're not worthy of being remade with new life from God. Sin, then, is not so much about offending God's wrath as it is a turning from God's kindly glance, which Julian locates in the face of Christ on the cross, disclosing God's willingness to suffer with and on behalf of humanity. For this reason, Julian connects the incarnation, the fleshly appearance of the divine word in our flesh, to the passion, Christ's wounds, where the word, now flesh, suffers with our flesh. Because God is good, she says, God is love, and so God is not angry and never will be. Here, Julian solves the theodicy conundrum, the idea that God is all-powerful and all-loving and yet permits suffering. God is not above on high, but encompasses our humanity entirely. Our existence is tied up with God's existence, and so the only conundrum is not what God permits, but why we turn from God's kindly glance. Because Jesus embodies divine compassion, he is like the mirror reflecting the face of God. For Julian, compassion also discloses the maternal side of Jesus. While male, he embodies this maternal quality, making him like a mother who can never suffer any kind of peril to come to her child because of her love. God's work is the work of the mother who embraces the child in its own shame. The maternal embrace of God not only heals us of our brokenness, but even causes us to forget our shame at our human lot. 
Above all, Julian is showing us how to enter into new life. Our suffering, when connected to Christ, is transformed. What was supposed to dehumanize us now works to renew our dignity. Despite appearances, the passion is cause for joy, not sorrow, and since it preserves the dignity of God's creation, it's a delight for God as much as it is for us. It's a delight because it's meaningful suffering, suffering for others, not senseless suffering at the hands of others. It's not about seeking pain, but divine solidarity in the rawest and realest side of our humanity. Julian takes the next step and rejects the idea of divine anger. If the only sin that concerns God is our shame at our own condition, and if God responds to it with a kindly glance to heal us, then wrathfulness has no place in God. Julian is not saying that people don't do bad things. Rather, by rejecting the idea of divine anger, she's depriving the ruling class of religious grounds to keep people in a debased state by telling them that it's due to God's anger at their rebelliousness. Julian's vision shows that God stands in solidarity with them. They have no cause to believe the ruling class that all is not well with God. The only reason to be troubled is for failing to enjoy a glimpse of the tender love that God has for us, for our total cure. God isn't asking us to grovel in our suffering to beseech forgiveness. That view of the cross only preserves hierarchies. Julian would have none of this. She rightly showed that the cross liberates us from forces that see suffering as humiliation. Attar finds inspiration in poetry that conveys themes of divine compassion through ordinary images. For example, he's fond of speaking of the sigh as the sign of what we take to be our ultimate reality. We should sigh out of longing for God because, Attar notes, we find our wholeness, body and soul, in the hundred thousand clouds of compassion that God rains down on us. Without that, our being would be fragmented into parts and stripped of dignity. For Attar, as a visionary poet, all existence is fading, revealing that the one permanent reality is the face of God. In calling us to see existence entire as arena of divine activity, Attar offers rich commentary on a verse in the Quran that says that all is ruin, save the face of God. His point is that humanity stands at the intersection of heaven and earth, allowing us to see divine kindness reflected in the depths of our own being. An echo of a Quranic story where God commands the angels to prostrate before Adam, Attar suggests there's something lordly in our humanity, making it worthy of reverent contemplation. The idea of humanity as a mirror in which we catch a glimpse of divine kindness sets the stage for the possibility of human divine bonding in suffering. When we journey to God in our wounded state, Attar says, our inner being becomes the sanctuary of the divine spirit. Separated from our divine origin, we're bound to suffer, but the idea that we're separated from God is also illusion that we're to overcome. God is always with us to comfort us even before we know it. Paradoxically, it is through our suffering that God provides us with new life. As Attar notes, if bravely you let life go, the beloved will give life to you in abundance. 
Attar teaches us not only that God, being everywhere, is witness to our suffering, but more profoundly that God takes up our suffering, since whatever is taking place in the human soul is actually divine activity. The idea has its origins in scholarly debates over free will. Some said nothing can compromise God's sovereign will, and so God is controlling, even creating our actions as if a puppeteer. Atar reworks the idea. It's not God's sovereign will to be everywhere in order to control us, but in order to comfort us amidst suffering. Atar helps us see that God is not a doctrinal formula designed to preserve divinity in a transcendent state beyond the messiness of the human condition. Rather, God embraces our entire being. For this reason, he speaks of the human encounter with God in terms of union, more so than obedience. But he doesn't see union as a scholastic definition that defines all existence, humanity included, as being mere contingency, having no existence of its own apart from God. Union, Atar explains, is love, and there's no love without a willingness to suffer with and for the beloved. God may put mountains of pain upon the soul, but since God is all in all, God bears the burden. This anecdote shows Attar's twofold view of suffering. On the one hand, God is source of human pain, not from malicious intention, but because the nature of our existence gives rise to pangs of longing for divine solace. On the other hand, as source of this solace, God is also healer of our pain. For this reason, Attar notes, you won't know God's healing glance if you think you're to leave pain behind when approaching God. Without offering God our scarred heart, God's kindly glance has nowhere to fall. Across myriad tales, Attar vividly communicates God's empowering compassion. For example, he tells the tale of a mother whose child, having fallen into a stream, floats towards a watery end, but is saved by the mother's heroic intervention. The child represents humanity, destined to drown in a whirlpool of confusion, were it not for a compassionate gesture by God who turns to us with a kindly glance, delivering us from our pain. Like Julian, Attar speaks of God as mother, who offers nourishing milk from breasts of divine goodness. If God is compassion, how could God not be maternal? The maternal quality of God is not foreign to Islam. According to a prophetic tradition, God's mercy is vastly greater than a mother's. Attar would agree. God isn't female, but is rightly encountered through the lens of maternal compassion. Another of Attar's many tales on divine compassion speaks of a king who hears that his beloved slave is afflicted with suffering, the result of the evil eye. The king, out of compassion, feels the slave's affliction. The king here, it's clear, is God. Sovereignty, if true, requires compassion for creation in its suffering. Attar's words are a warning to all worldly powers. As for Shapira and Julian, so too for Attar. Compassion is not simply consoling. It transforms us. It gives us new life. Paradoxically, it raises us to a state that is better than what we knew before suffering. Attar illustrates this with the story of a poor old man who gathers thorns to sell his firebrush. He's having trouble managing his load of thorns, 
and a king whom the thorn gatherer doesn't recognize as a king passes by to help him. Later, when he learns the truth, he realizes his thorns have new value as a result of having been touched by a kingly hand. The thorns, of course, are a metaphor for our pains and sufferings, but they receive new value when touched by the divine king.